Welcome to Linda's Corner, a podcast created to inspire hope, increase joy, and motivate positive change. Hi, my name is Linda Bjork. I'm an author, teacher, speaker, blogger, and founder and executive director of Hope for Healing, which is a nonprofit charity designed to help alleviate symptoms of depression and anxiety, relieve stress, build confidence and self esteem, and heal relationships. You can learn more by visiting our website at hopeforhealingfoundation.org. For today's episode, I'm going to share a segment from one of my books called Crushed. If you're joining us for the first time, I would suggest that you start at the first podcast, since stories tend to make more sense when you read them, or listen to them, in order from the beginning to the end. Chapter 2. Broken I was born into a family of storybook perfection. My parents loved each other and were committed to making home and family a happy place. My mother's joy came from raising her children. Our lives were the center of her world. There were seven of us with a spread of 18 years between the oldest and the youngest. I am the second to youngest. She especially rejoiced in her close relationship with her oldest child, Becky. They were best friends. Because she loved Becky so much, it was bittersweet when a handsome young man swept her daughter off her feet and altered their relationship. My mother was prepared to rejoice with her daughter in her new love and support her in her upcoming roles as wife and eventually as mother, but she was not prepared for her future son-in-law's version of what that future should look like. Like most young people, he assumed that marriage meant picking up his lovely bride and transporting her into his familiar world. In this case, that meant that she should sever her ties with her family and move 2,000 miles away to be near his family. Furthermore, due to a limited budget and the expense of flights and long-distance phone calls, she would be able to call her parents once each month and might travel to visit her family once every two years. The young couple had no idea what the ripple effects in the wake of these decisions would be. My mother was devastated and felt absolutely betrayed by her daughter's apparent willingness to abandon her so completely. Her world collapsed. She was broken and crushed. She built emotional walls to protect herself. She had given her all and decided that if that's what children do to you, then she would never get close to her children again. I was six years old. It was like flipping off a light switch. My mother, who had once cuddled me and read to me, suddenly would have nothing to do with me. I was still fed and clothed and basic needs were met, but the wall between us was palpable. I was shocked and confused. What had I done wrong? It must have been awful. What was wrong with me? I knew that she was a loving person, but she no longer loved me. There must have been something about me specifically that was unworthy of love. I felt that way my whole life. There is love in the world, but not for me, because I am unlovable. As an adult and leader of youth, I have often taught the young women that I worked with that they are daughters of a Heavenly Father who loves them. 
As I looked around the room at the beautiful teenage girls whom I loved dearly, I felt an absolute conviction that those words applied to each and every one of them. But deep in my heart, I felt an equally strong conviction that those words did not apply to me because I am unlovable. A few seemingly insignificant life events cemented my new reality into my mind. At my elementary school, we prepared a special evening program for our parents. I was now 10 years old, and I already knew from experience that my parents would not come. The school was nearby, so I walked alone to perform in the program where the auditorium was filled with hundreds of people, but not one of them had come to support me. And then I walked home alone. I knew that some people were loved and supported, but I was not worthy of love and support. I tried not to expect it, tried not to be disappointed, but the hurt was deeply felt. That pattern has continued throughout my life. I know that people won't want to come to support me, so I don't ask. And when they don't come, my reality is validated. When I graduated from college, the auditorium was filled with thousands of people, but not a single seat was filled with a person who had come to support me. I have always had terrible anxiety about hosting any kind of activity or party because I know in my heart that if I'm the host, no one will come. I longed to be important to somebody. I longed to matter to somebody. I especially longed to matter to my family, where I felt utterly invisible. When I was 12, I was gifted with an opportunity that I thought would solve all my problems. My grandmother invited me to fly to California with her to visit my uncle's family. This was my big chance. It was perfect. I had never flown in an airplane, and I'd only been to the airport a handful of times in my life. Each time my sister arrived for her biannual visits, the whole family came to meet her at the airport, and she was greeted like a rock star. I had also been to the airport to welcome home my older brothers as they returned home from foreign missions, and they were welcomed like heroes. It was a party. The whole family came, and there were flowers and signs and balloons. That had been the experience every single time I had ever been to the airport. I thought it was always like that. Airports were magical, and now it was my turn. I couldn't wait for my trip with my grandmother. I didn't care about flying in an airplane or swimming in my uncle's pool or playing with my cousins. All I cared about was that magical return flight when I would, for the first time in my life, be the one arriving at the airport. I was so excited. I could see it all in my mind. My whole family would come to pick me up, and they would be happy and excited to see me. I was going to be important now, too. I was finally going to matter. When our plane landed, I was so nervous, but giddy with excitement. When we emerged from the plane and saw no familiar faces among the crowds of people, I was devastated. There were no greetings, no balloons, no family members with open arms. A few moments later, my father arrived alone to drive us home in an unfamiliar car. 
He had traded in our old car and bought a new one while I was away. Not only did no one come to greet me, but life had improved because of my absence. I now knew, without a doubt, that I would never be important to my family, and there was absolutely nothing that I could do to change that. I resigned myself to my role of invisibility and insignificance. I resigned myself to my unalterable brokenness. Of course, you can still live a meaningful life when you're broken. Look at the people all around you. Look to the left, look to the right, look into the mirror. You can get up each day and go to school or work and fulfill your responsibilities. You can laugh and love and grow and serve. You can fall in love and marry and have children. You can experience joy and pain and deal with the experiences of life and keep moving forward. I've been broken for over 40 years, and my life has been good. It has been very good. I'm used to my brokenness. It is familiar, and familiarity is comfortable. Chapter 3. Crushed. Many years later, I had an experience perfectly tailored to crush me. In imagining all the things that could possibly go wrong in my life, this one was never even on the radar. It wasn't like being hit by a semi-truck, a single, powerful, devastating blow. It was rather like being hit by an earthquake. Sometimes the greatest damage isn't done by the initial earthquake. It comes from the related aftershocks. The earthquake damages the foundations, and the aftershocks bring down the weakened buildings. When my personal earthquake hit, it brought me to my knees. When I tried to stand again, another aftershock knocked me down. That process repeated itself over and over until I didn't dare stand. I was metaphorically crouched in the fetal position in a corner, hiding from the next threat. The depression and anxiety were all-consuming. I went for a drive by myself, desperately longing for death to end my pain, mentally begging the cars around me to crash into me. But please, don't just hurt me. Make sure you hit me hard enough to kill me. I drove to a secluded place where I could sob in solitude. I did not think that I could endure another day. I mentally checked through the list of each family member and how my death might affect them. I thought of my husband. Oh, he hates me anyway. He'd probably be relieved. Two children were already married. I checked them off the list. But when I got to the youngest, who were still at home, I knew that they still needed me. I sobbed wretched with the knowledge that there would be no escape from my misery. Although my existence was useless, my death would bring added misery to innocent people, and that wasn't fair to them. I had no choice but to endure. I made my decision to return home and felt what I can only describe as a darkness, a presence, an entity with me in the car. Perhaps it had been with me all along, but I didn't perceive it until that moment when it raged with fury. I don't know what it was, but I could feel that it hated me with a loathing passion and wanted me dead. It was angry that I had chosen to carry on. The experience frightened me enough to momentarily pull me out of my despair and I was able to drive home. 
So, I endured. I existed. I perfunctorily performed my responsibilities and tried to hide my pain. This must have been the way my mother felt as she raised me in her broken state. I shuddered to think of the damage I was inflicting on the next generation, but I was honestly doing my best. A person who has never endured this can never fully understand the effort it takes to pretend to be normal. I was filled with anxiety and dreaded any social encounters. The innocent question, how are you, was the most excruciating experience. I pretended and lied. I lived in fear of exposure because I was a fraud. I avoided social situations and was constantly looking for an escape route. I hid from other people like prey hides from predators. I was not safe anywhere. A good day was one in which I didn't wish to cease existing. I had those sometimes. The depression seemed to come in waves. When I was down, there was no joy. There was no hope. I could see a beautiful sunset or smell a fragrant rose or hear a child's laughter and feel absolutely nothing. Happiness doesn't come from circumstances. It comes from within. And within, I was empty. I lived in that place for five years. In the past, I had always been able to find joy in forgetting myself and serving others. But every time I tried to serve, I failed. When my two-year-old grandson found a marker during his supposed nap time, he covered the walls, the sheets on his bed, and everything else he could reach with green artwork. I thought, well, here is something I can do. I can at least wash walls. I searched on the internet to find the best method of marker removal and armed myself with washcloths, paper towels, magic erasers, etc., and headed to my daughter's home. I had texted beforehand to let her know that I was coming. But when she opened the door, she was surprised to see me. I'm so sorry, I can't visit today, she said. I have a doctor's appointment and I'll be leaving soon. You didn't know I was coming? I guess you didn't get my text, I replied. Well, that's okay. I can clean while you're away. Clean? What are you going to clean? She looked puzzled. I put it in my text. I came to clean the marker off the walls and wash the marker off the sheets. Oh, she seemed slightly embarrassed for me. I already cleaned the walls and the sheets are in the washer. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't get here in time. I gave her a hug and returned to the car carrying my basket of supplies and trying not to cry. Another opportunity for service came. This one was to help in a canning factory which provides food to feed the poor and needy. I gathered my courage and signed up. When I received the text that they had enough help and didn't need me, I cried. Another opportunity arose and I tried again. I arrived at the canning factory, received the training, and washed and put on the hairnet, apron, and gloves. Today, they were canning cream of mushroom soup. Volunteers were assigned various stations, and I was among two volunteers assigned to the initial step, actually preparing the soup mixture in a large vat which would then be sealed into cans. A trained overseer walked us through each step, working with us as we followed the instructions written on a clipboard. As each step was completed, we were to put our initials next to the step, indicating that we had completed that part and marking the time. Something went wrong with a batch of soup, and there were lumps. 
they had to halt the whole production line, throw out that batch of soup, and make a new one. Guess whose signature was on that batch of soup? Mine. The workers were very kind and assured me that it wasn't my fault, but I knew that it really was. I am a Jonah. I am bad luck and should be thrown overboard for the good of humanity. In the past, whenever I got overwhelmed, my husband, Lewis, would encourage me to back off and not take on too much. His advice was kindly meant, but the message I always heard was, quit, give up. What you're doing doesn't make any difference anyway. It made me angry. After so many failed attempts, I knew that he was right all along. My help was neither wanted nor useful. Service, which had once been a lifeline to happiness and fulfillment, was no longer an option. I was useless. I was completely trapped with no method of escape in sight. I had no hope of deliverance. Chapter 4. The Invitation When I first saw the email from my sister Suzanne with an invitation to attend a women's retreat, I recoiled in horror. The idea of being surrounded by people day and night with no means of retreat or escape filled me with anxiety. I wouldn't even open the email. The subject was terrifying enough. I quickly put it out of my mind. A few days later, when I finally dared open the email, I learned that my sister wasn't just inviting me to this retreat. She was hosting it. She said she felt inspired that it was something she needed to do. I printed the attachment and read, Remembering You, All-Inclusive Women's Retreat at the Marriott Mountainside Resort in Park City. A happy home begins with you. Come enjoy a rejuvenating and relaxing three-day, three-nights women retreat. Be inspired with 12 hours of enlightening training and engaging activities. Recharge yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Gain greater awareness of your amazing identity and power within. Learn how to experience greater peace and happiness today and always. Acquire tools and techniques to create the life and relationships you want. All while enjoying this beautiful resort nestled among nature and mountains. No thank you. It would not be a rejuvenating and relaxing retreat. It would be a nightmare. Although the topic sounded like something I needed, I had no hope that anything would actually make a difference. Besides, there's no way I can endure being that close to people without an escape. It took tremendous effort to make it through a single conversation without falling apart. There's no way I could survive three days. I'd love to support my sister, but I couldn't do that. A few days later, my mother stopped by to talk with me about the women's retreat. I learned that my mother, who had taken up painting in her retirement years, had been recruited to be one of the guest speakers at the retreat. Her topic was, seeing your place in the big picture, you matter. All the attendees were going to paint a picture together as part of the therapy. Oh, great, now I feel even more guilt. Since I was keenly aware of how it feels not to be supported and to prepare and to have no one show up, I made a great effort to support others. Now, it would not only be my sister I was letting down, but also my mother. I didn't want to go, but I felt guilty. My mother gave me a copy of a more detailed agenda for the retreat. I read, Woman is that she might have joy. You won't want to miss these powerful and uplifting topics. Loving yourself, learning why this is the key to truly loving others. 
improving your relationship with self and God. Learn powerful techniques to better connect with and receive answers from our Father in Heaven. Learn how to overcome our natural tendency to compare and why this is so important as it interferes with your relationships and happiness. Come to know your true identity. Come to love and appreciate your body. Understand the need to be your own cheerleader. Learn tools and techniques to increase your energy and happiness. How to heal and improve your marriage. How to better connect with your children. They need you. The four different energy types and how they affect relationships. Seeing your place in the big picture. You matter. How to achieve your goals and experience the joy of success. Understanding natural laws and how they empower you. Realize the power to create the life you want. The material sounded like something that I needed, although I doubted that anything would actually help me. Nothing could help me. I was trapped with no possible escape. When is the retreat? I inquired. She answered. Oh, I'm not sure I can come, I said, relieved that I might have a legitimate excuse not to go. My daughter is expecting a baby, and that's just a few days after her due date. Her babies come late, so I'll probably be helping her then. Well, that's okay. I know you're all right and don't need this, but do you know of anyone else who does? She inquired. I cocked my head slightly. Am I? She laughed. I must have been a better actress than I thought if I could convince my own mother that I was all right. Now, if I could just get her to leave before I fell apart and blew my cover. But she didn't leave yet. She wanted to talk about sleeping arrangements just in case I did go. I don't understand, I said. Doesn't everyone get their own room? No, Suzanne rented two two-bedroom condos which sleep eight people each. So, if you come, do you want to share a bed with me? Wait, what? Not just share a room, but share a bed? My mind went to the scene in Moby Dick where Ishmael and Queequeg shared a bed. That didn't turn out so well. I didn't think people did that anymore. This nightmare was even worse than I previously thought. No place to escape from other people day or night. Um, remember that I probably won't be able to make it, I stammered, trying to hide my repulsion at the idea. Okay, but if you can come, I'd like you to be with me. She finally gathered her things to go. Phew. Crisis averted, I thought. Then, my daughter betrayed me by having her baby two weeks early. Chapter 5 Emotion Code My lovely daughter has many virtuous qualities, but patience is not one of them. Being miserable in the late stages of pregnancy found her looking up every possible wives' tale on how to induce labor early. When expecting her first child, she heard that garlic induces labor and found a restaurant that serves a labor-inducing pizza loaded with roasted garlic. It's not listed on the menu, but if you happen to have learned about it by word of mouth, you can order this magical creation. She planned a triple date with two friends who were also in their final weeks of pregnancy and ordered the largest size pizza they had, chowed down, and hoped. One of the three actually did have her baby that night. She was already having contractions before the meal began, so I'm not convinced that the pizza had anything to do with it, but the legend continues. However, it didn't work for my daughter, who headed to the internet for the next surefire labor-inducing trick. 
She tried taking long walks, castor oils, stripping the membranes, chiropractic adjustments, eating pineapple, etc. Nothing worked to induce early labor, on-time labor, or slightly overdue labor. The child was finally born two weeks late. Now, in the late stages of pregnancy with her second child, she was back to her research. Mom, can you drive me to the acupuncturist today? She asked. I don't have a car today, but I found a Groupon online so I can get a discount, and they say they can stimulate the points that will induce labor. Sure. What time is your appointment? I answered. She told me, and then added, You should do it too. It will be fun. I'm in, I replied. I've had acupuncture before to help with vertigo, and it was very effective. We drove to the acupuncturist, one I had never met before, and began filling out paperwork. When it came to the question, what is the reason for your visit, I hesitated. If I wrote depression and anxiety, my daughter might see it and my cover would be blown. And yet, that's the help I needed. I took a deep breath and wrote it on the paper. He worked on my daughter first, verifying how far she was along to ensure that the baby was fully developed and ready before proceeding. Don't be disappointed if nothing happens today. It usually takes 24 to 48 hours before the labor begins, he reassured her. 24 to 48 hours? Yeah, right, I thought. It will probably be another 14 to 28 days. But I was willing to go along with it since it wasn't going to hurt anything. Then it was my turn. He read through my paperwork and read the part that I hoped to keep secret aloud. Depression and anxiety? I nodded shyly, and he went on. These types of problems usually have an emotional basis and might be better helped another way. I offer other services in addition to acupuncture. Have you ever heard of the emotion code and the body code? Yes. My sister is actually certified in the emotion code and the body code. I think it sounds awesome. But my husband thinks it's all baloney, I replied. He smiled. I've had a lot of experience helping people, and I can assure you that it's not baloney. If you ever want to come back and try that, just let me know. He performed the acupuncture and sent us on our way. Dr. Butler's words kept echoing in my mind and brought to the surface thoughts that I had previously repressed into oblivion. He reintroduced the idea of the emotion code. The emotion code was developed by renowned holistic physician and lecturer Dr. Bradley Nelson. He teaches that emotionally charged events from your past can still be haunting you in the form of trapped emotions which are emotional energies that literally inhabit your body. The emotion code is a process of identifying and releasing those trapped emotions. When my sister Suzanne first introduced the idea to me, I was intrigued. She was using the emotion code to help her daughter heal from the emotional trauma of being caught in a devastating typhoon in the Philippines and planned to continue her training and open her own practice to help others. I loved the idea of being able to help people heal and wanted to join with her. I purchased Dr. Nielsen's initial package of books and training materials, but my husband wanted me to have nothing to do with it. He thought it was a fraud and researched earnestly on the internet to discredit it. That hoogie-poogie makes me sick, he declared. By the time my materials had arrived in the mail, it was already a taboo topic at our house. In order to preserve a semblance of peace in our home, I sadly forwarded the package to another friend who I hoped would be able to use it but I deeply resented being stymied and having my beliefs mocked and ridiculed. I haven't been able to think about the emotion code or the body code without shame, regret, jealousy, and anger, so I tried not to think about it at all. It became a taboo topic to me as well. 
If my sister ever mentioned her practice at family gatherings, I had to leave the room. Having the acupuncturist remind me that it existed and adding testimony to its effectiveness was actually painful. I tried to re-forget it. We scheduled a second acupuncture session for my daughter for the following Monday, since neither of us thought the first session would actually induce labor. But she hoped to at least start dilating so that her doctor would allow her to be induced the following week. However, to our utter amazement, she wasn't able to make the second appointment. She had the baby that weekend. Labor had indeed started about 48 hours after her acupuncture visit. One of her have-the-baby-early schemes actually worked. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this section of the book. The next section is available on the following podcast. Please subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. The book Crushed is available on Amazon, and the audiobook version will soon be available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Again, my name is Linda Bjork. You can find more information by searching for Linda Bjork Hope for Healing, Linda Bjork Two Good Things, and Linda Bjork Innovative Joy. In closing, I'd like to leave you with an inspirational quote by Henry Nguyen. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. I hope that today you choose joy. See you next time on Linda's Corner.